Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. Allow me to introduce today's guest. All right, inspiring people and places. I think we are getting ready to have one of our more inspirational, educational, informational conversations. I'm excited to invite our next guest. Before I jump into why it's going to be informational and inspirational, I do want to read his his bio here. Of course, we'll get to his background that led to such a rich bio, but Mel Gravely is the CEO and chairman of the board of Triversity Construction Company, a Cincinnati, Ohio-based commercial contractor. Triversity specializes in providing services to large, complex organizations with ongoing construction needs. The firm is consistently recognized as one of the 100 largest privately held companies in the Cincinnati region. He's also active in the business community, community boards. He is a BS in computer science from University of Mountain Union. We were just talking before we got on the show. Shout out to our, our friend Nick Siriani, Go Birds, and Mountain Union alumni. He is an MBA from Kent State University and a PhD in business administration from the Union Institute and University. He has been recognized for his contributions in numerous ways, including the Larry Albice Entrepreneurship Award, the Woman Women Mentor of the Year Award, the Men of Honor Award, the Carl Linder Award for Entrepreneurial and Civic Spirit, and a STEMI Award as their 2022 Entrepreneur of the Year. Our friend Mel, my newest friend Mel, is quite accomplished, so I'm excited to dig into to his journey here. But he's also recognized writer of books and articles, including the popular 2021 book, Dear White Friend, The Realities of Race, The Power of Relationships, and Our Path to Equity. The book is an open, candid, and collegial series of letters to his white friends written to bring us to a better understanding and solutions on this delicate topic of race. So I'm excited to dig into that. And, and like me, he has this on here. So we're going we're gonna to do a shout out to the family. He's married to Chandra Gravely, a physician, and they live in Cincinnati. They have three adult children and one granddaughter. Mel Gravely, welcome to the show. BJ, it is my honor to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. I, I read your bio, but every every bio has a, a long journey and story behind it, and we like to explore that. So talk to us about your journey. I don't know if it was a business, a construction. You started out with a computer science degree. So talk to us about, yeah. about your journey to, uh, to where you are today. Yeah, I'll make the long story super short. I just had no idea what I wanted to do. And I just kept doing things and one led to the other. Computer science led me to a co-op experience with the Timken Company. I met the people from IBM when I was at the Timken Company. I wanted to work for IBM. I went to work for IBM, ran through the gauntlet of things there, learned how to be a professional and and just wanted to, had this earning, yearning to be an entrepreneur. And so I've been in a series of businesses that I either started or bought or ran for other people for the last you know, 25, 25 years, almost 30 now years. And, and the latest is the one I run today. I, I bought Triversity Construction in 2009. And if you think about what was going on in our industry then, it was a perfect time to buy. 
couldn't get much worse. But but I've only <laughs> I've only seen uptimes. So there's one, you know, my claim to fame is I've only seen an up industry because 2009 was pretty bad. So yeah, uh, that's the long story short of of my journey to here. And and what led you to Triversity? Was it just opportunistic? It really was because I don't have a construction background. This company predates me. I didn't start it. I, I bought controlling interest. And one of the three partners, that's where the tri came from. There were three partners at the beginning. One of the three partners wasn't completely pleased with his other two partners. And so he forced a sale. I bought out the other two partners. And that third partner is still in the business today. They have a smaller piece than they had before. But that's how I got in this industry. And talk to us about where the company has gone from when you bought it to where it is today. Yeah, when I bought it, it was on paper a 30 million dollar company, it, but it didn't have any employees at a different business model. The, the three partners would loan this brand, this Triversity brand employees. And when the project was over, they would take them back. And so the, the Triversity company itself didn't build any capabilities, any capacity of its own. It was borrowing it from its partners. That model for a lot of reasons just did not work well. And it surely didn't create an enduring hundred year old company, which is what I want to build. So when I bought it, we we began to build our internal capabilities. So today we've got, I don't know, 105, 110 people. We'll do about $120 million in revenue. We've got all of our clients are private with the exception of the University of Cincinnati. We've got a project or so with them, but we're a private, you know, we're contracted for private companies primarily. And, and we've got the one office here, so we've not expanded to other cities, although we have tried, just didn't work. That's amazing. And is it all general construction and self-performance or is there, is there any consulting or owner's rep involved? No, no, we don't. Do? Yeah, we don't, we don't do any owner's rep. Our, 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 we've got really two businesses. We've got a drywall self-performed business that does some carpentry and interior. They'll do some light demo and things of that nature. It's a small division inside the company that we purchased in 2013. And then, but the, the primary, the mothership is what we call it, is a CM at risk model. We'll do a little GC here or there. We'll do, you know, but we don't do CM agency. We don't really do owner's rep. We are focused on projects that are $25 million or, or below that we can go win and execute. And we do a lot of healthcare. So almost half our business is some kind of either major renovation or new construction in healthcare. Okay. Awesome. What do you think the secret sauce to your growth in the last 15 years has been? Well, that's a great question. People are at the center of it. We really service, we have a service business, much like yours. We're in a service business. So it's all about people, people, people. I think our, 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 our desire to just narrowly focus yeah. on the things we do really, really well and build deep capabilities there. We know exactly who we are and we don't usually get distracted. And every time we do get distracted, we get reminded that, no, no, this is really who you are. Go do that and do it well. And so that focus, we also have a, a discipline to our management and planning that really is built to, to last, you know, for the next hundred years. And you've heard me say it twice now. I, I want to build a multi-generational business because uh, and, and based on in related to the topic we'll talk about, that's part of the challenge that that, you know, we don't have the same kind of history around business formation, wealth creation, wealth dissemination through through races. And, and so that's one of my big motivators is to build a business that can last. So talk to me. I, I want to go right to that issue you brought up, not yep. not race in general, but 
where did your inspiration for generational wealth and education around what generational wealth is come from? Wow. You know, I should have prepared more for that. You should have sent me these ahead of time. <laughs> these are on the fly. Yeah, here, here's, here's the thing. I have been blessed to be around people who talk about things that weren't talked about in my neighborhood at my house. And, and that blessing has created an awareness in me that, that helps me calibrate my expectations, my aspirations, my purpose, my vision. And this whole idea of generational wealth and how it's created, I learned from my white friends, quite honestly. I've studied entrepreneurship. My PhD thesis is in, and my dissertation is a study of African-American entrepreneurship in our country. And so I understand that topic very, very well. But what I now can juxtapose upon that is how this whole business world works and, and how the companies I'm competing with, how they were built and how different that is from how my company was built and, and how at some point I want to make sure my company's competing with other companies based on the history that's just as rich as theirs. And I think that's mm -hmm. part of how you build an endearing company. So, you know, culture inside of our company is a big deal. And and planning and succession planning and having a board of directors and all of these things that are help you be built to last are really important. But I learned them through my exposure to the business world in general. You you hit built to last. Is that a Jim Collins reference or is that just <laughs> not 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 overtly? I, I could use terms like evergreen. You know, we always want to be privately owned and we want to last for the next hundred years. I could use, you know, enduring, I can use multi-generational, but they all mean the same thing to me that four generations from now, they'll have forgotten my name and, but the leaders of that company will be, will be living off the legacy we helped them build. So that leads to my next question. You bought in 2009, how active have you been in the business versus on the business through that time period? Because you talk about succession planning yeah, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs hit a point where small business owners, they're so used to being the performer of everything, and maybe they have an assistant to performing everything, and then they you know, take a risk and hire a manager of some sort, but they, they sometimes can't get out of their own way to let the, let the business build the business. And, and yeah. honestly, I'm struggling with some of that myself. Yeah. What parts, what parts do I need hands on? What parts do I need hands off yeah. as we continue to evolve and grow and allow other people to take ownership of parts, processes, even vision for different departments. So yeah. I would love to hear your, your take on you that. Have, you have, you, you, this is not your first podcast, I can tell. So, <laughs> you know, here's the difference between myself and most people who sit in a chair like mine with a company this age and this size. Most of them are construction professionals. And so I, I never was. So what I brought to this was the understanding of strategy. I brought to this the understanding of how to manage large accounts. I brought to this a perspective of, of a sales process, I, all the business planning stuff. I brought that to this business, but I didn't bring construction expertise. What I had to go learn was how does this business work from a construction standpoint? So that was my gap to fill. But I was never going to be good enough at it to actually run construction operations. And right. so I never had to detach myself from the operations of the business. Um, so I was very involved in every single element of this company. I mean, I was in owner meetings and I was involved in projects. And, but, but I was never 
I was the I was the owner. I was the CEO. I was even the president for a long time, but but I was never going to be the chief operations person because I just didn't have the credentials to do that. So I didn't have to detach myself. And I think, in hindsight, that was probably a blessing. I have yeah. to detach myself emotionally from knowing everything that's going on and controlling it all. I still have to detach <laughs> myself from that. But but I never had to detach myself from the operations. So but my the president of our company today. And my business partner, we recruited in the first year that I took over. And it took us nine months to find this, this person. And I, we're in Cincinnati. We recruited him out of, he was in Detroit at the time. But he, he, he ran our construction. He, 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 he's a servant in the construction space. But, but immediately he's thrust into this business role, which was new for him. And so we've evolved together, him coming to the business side, me continuing to understand construction. But but I never had that control problem because I, I couldn't really understand it. Got it. Now, you said you were CEO president. Now you have a president. So this is the start yeah. of secession planning, right? Yeah. How did you is. choose your president? Well, it's complicated a little bit, right? It always is. The, the gentleman we hired during my first year, the recruiter we used was brilliant. He was part psychologist, part, part the recruiter. It took him nine months to find the right person, but he actually met this guy the first week he was did the search. Hmm. And he kept saying to me, after we went through many, many, you know, I kissed a lot of toads along the way. He kept saying to me, don't hire that guy. I know you want to hire somebody. I know you want to get it done, but that's not the right one. I got the right one. I, the guy just won't talk to me. Just give me another 30 days. I think I can get this guy to talk to me. So the recruiter is pushing back his own payment because he knows that this connection is so important and he thought he had the right person. I got to tell you, there's a combination of skill set and experiences that are important to, to this job. But there's also this ability to align around vision and culture. And it took us two meetings to find out we were aligned around that. It took me a little while longer to convince his wife that they really wanted to move from Detroit to Cincinnati. But, uh, <laughs> but once he joined the company, we started running it as partners from day one. He, he eventually bought in some, some ownership, and, and it's a natural progression for him to become the, the president, maybe one day CEO as well. That's great. All right. So second part of the podcast, I, I think we hit, is there anything we didn't cover in, in kind of your background that you think, think so. is important or rich Nothing to the conversation? None of that was even important to me, really. <laughs> it's it's all getting to know you, though. Like, Good context. Yes, yes, mes yes. Message, messenger, background. I, I yeah. think, you know, you hitting on the the mindset of generational wealth, which is I, I just had I just had breakfast yesterday with my next door neighbor who is 12 years ahead of me from when I grew up in Northeast Philly. And he just told me the average income in our neighborhood is forty seven thousand dollars. And he just put together a trade school and the graduates of that program, high school graduates, welding trades, electrical trades, HVAC trades, are the average salary they're starting out at is $75,000. So you have an average income in the neighborhood of $47,000. He's given, you know, through this program, he's letting the next generation make more than their parents are making out of high school, which yeah. is pretty incredible. Yeah. But like like you, I wasn't exposed, or, or maybe like a lot of people, I wasn't exposed to the idea of generational wealth. I remember when I was getting out of the army, I said what to my dad, well, what did you want to do? And he said, dude, I, I had four kids before I was 30. I didn't get to think yeah. about what I wanted to do. I had to put food on the table. Yeah. And, and I, he was extremely successful. But again, 
you know, he had, he had a, a phenomenal career in the Air Force, but the concept of generational wealth wasn't around me. The concept of entrepreneurship or business sure. ownership right. uh, or any of that wasn't around me. So you touched on one, one fraction of what is probably a greater conversation. And, and I was really interested in, in how that came about. And similar to you, reading books and being around it is how I, you know, hmm, how did that guy, how did that guy have success? You yeah. know, and, well, and then what's I that think person's a, biography? Yeah. And I've become obsessed with, obsessed is too strong. I've become intentional about how I talk to my kids. And how my wife and I talk to our kids. We have an annual meeting now every year and, and, and there's an agenda to it. And there's always a learning topic. And, and I don't want them wonder, worrying about money or obsessing about money because it's not about that. It's, it's about clarity around the being a steward over the things that you've, you know, that you've been blessed to have and a good steward. And, and so we talk about things like philanthropy and we talk about savings and we talk about investments and we talk, we give them an update on the business and how it's going. And one of my sons sits on the board. It's a rotating seat that I'm going to have all my kids sit in just so they understand the governance of, of something. So I'm, I want to be more intentional about it. it. It is not for everyone. It's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting, though, as an entrepreneur, at least what I want, I want to grow a company to scale. I want it to have some level of wealth for my family, but I also want it to spill into wealth and better income for other people. And I want my kids to get that. They don't have to repeat it and do it, but that's, that's what their parents are really trying to do in this world. And to me, that's important. I, I, I heard a podcast and I'm, I'm shooting myself for not being able to recall it. I'm pretty sure it was Tim Ferriss interviewing one of the founders of Home Depot. And, and it hit me. I remember I was driving from Austin, Texas to San Antonio. It's got to be six years ago. But he said that the, the responsibility of business leadership is to grow the wealth and the prosperity of all of your employers or employees, not just you and your shareholders, yeah. right? It's, it's Absolutely. your employees. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I sat in on a strategy class at University of Pennsylvania and, and the comment that the, I forget, the, I think it was Sonia Marciana. I'm, I'm going to get that wrong. John Nelson's going to text me and correct me because he was there with me, but she said something to the effect of the question, and this is this is kind of she was being a little sarcastic, but she's like, "You want to know where you want to land? Look look at the secretaries that retired out of Microsoft. It's like there are secretaries right now that went, <laughs> you know, start in the mailroom of of the yep. most successful, you know, yeah, stock, and and yep. then retire at fifty and have a yacht. I um, agree, but." But I, I love that you're you're talking about that because I I think about it often. It's not you know first step in entrepreneurship is you know cash flow, right? Pay right. the bills. Yeah, don't run out. Get revenue. Don't run out get of cash. Revenue. Whatever you do. get revenue, you know, and then it's like get pipeline and have have some predictable predictability to that revenue, and then it's invest in people, and then you know, and each step of this really does need to lead to at the end goal being a business that can run itself without us, right? Because if I'm integral to everything, then it fails when I get hit by a bus or if I'm not here. Absolutely. Uh, and two, everybody should feel some stake and some ownership and some excitement in, in the reward of growing it. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up. And it's one piece of this bigger puzzle. 
that, that you started scratching on. So I want to jump into the race conversation yeah. and I want to jump into it by starting with why did you write the book? Yeah. There are days I ask myself that question too. So, you know, <laughs> think about it. This is, this is circa 2019 or right before 20. And, and there's a lot going on, but, but George Floyd hadn't happened. So just remember mm-hmm. that, George Floyd hadn't happened. And I went to a, a, a racial equity class that many of my CEO peers were invited to go to, and none of them went. So I was like, well, I'm going to go and you know, I'll be a business leader and I'll encourage my other. So I go and, and I was pissed off when I left. And I was bothered by the fact that I, w- I learned and discovered things in this, in this training that I didn't know. But the aha for me was, this is a racial equity training class. I've been black all my life. And I thought that gave me, I knew everything I needed to know. So the, the aha for me was, if I didn't know, then how would I expect my white friends? So I, I've got black friends that say, well, they should get it. Like, I, I can't believe they don't get this. Well, then I say, well, where would they have gotten it? We can't trust what we're learning in school, Right. Because what we're learning is, so what we were learning race, we're learning race kind of like we learn about sex, you know, so the people around us are talking about, and that's not a very good way to learn about it either, right? You don't learn from your peers. So, so it gave me this empathy to say, we, we, how would I expect my white friends to know? And so I believed at that moment, I don't have racist white friends. If they are, they're not my friends. They may be blind to race. They may be ignorant to the history of race. They may not recognize or agree with the implications of of how we built our name. All those things might be true, but they're not racist. They don't wake up every day looking to do harm to to people of color, any other people. They don't look to do harm. So if they knew better, maybe they would do better, was my premise. And then things just kept happening, right? George Floyd happens. And then Ahmaud Arbery, you remember that when they ran him Mm -hmm. down on a truck? That was the day I said, these letters and ideas I've been writing down have to become a book. There was a lane, there was a lot of writing in this topic, but no business leader had written about this topic. And I thought, let me bring my business civic leadership voice to this topic in a way that can relate to my white friends, in a way that gets us into a better conversation. I simply want to close the gap between our races in the way we talk about it. And I think if we can talk about it better, we can make more progress. So that was, you know, again, that's a longer story than that. It was a lot more emotion in it than that. COVID start kicked in and that provided a certain opportunity because I didn't have a lot of stuff to do in the evenings. And so there's a lot of timing that goes along with this, but that's, that's really the end. So I love what you just said. And, and I love that you, you know, maybe to some degree, and maybe I even stole this out of, out of something I read about you, you had, you had one foot in each world. You know, you're somebody that went to a business conference on this and you learned something yourself. Right. So you could take that to, to business owners. I, I appreciate, I have not read the book yet. So I want to make that clear to everybody. I, I, I have ordered it. I, I didn't read it because I couldn't listen to it. It's not on audible yet. No, it's not. And it's not going to be, by the way, <laughs> there's a whole long story about that, but trust me, I hear it all the time. <laughs> and, and my, I have a similar circle of friends. They're not racist. I, I, I grew up in the army where it, it's, you know, it is a breeding ground of teamwork and cohesion and, and first movers in a lot of ways for, for breaking down racism. Absolutely. Uh, I come from the sports world where, 
you know, a lot of barriers are being broken down and, and teams are again, lots of mix. And I go around the country and I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but the, the vast majority of people I interact with don't go out to do harm, right? right. That, that, that's, that's true. But then I come home to a TV and it, it's, it's, I think that we've taken what should be a, a personal conversation like we're about to have about the issue. And I'm, I'm, I'm teeing you up to, to talk about this. And I feel like the, the echo chambers and the, and the political far lefts and rights have turned what should be an engaging conversation into divisiveness and stoking emotion and, and really just looking for, for rallying the emotion of the far right and far left as opposed to trying to solve real problems, have real conversations and, and implement public policy that, that we can all understand and agree upon why, why it should exist. Yeah. So tell me some of the things that you wrote about in the book or that you learned about in this, in this conference that you didn't know about. Yeah. Well, by the way, you just said a whole lot. If, if, <laughs> if this, if this book is successful, it it cools down the conversation without watering it down. It gives us a language and a and a space to talk about things and bring our own perspectives to them. So let me just talk about a couple of things I, I, I didn't know that I discovered. I did not realize how the companies I compete against every day got started. And so these companies got single source contracts to do work. And it wasn't seen as a set aside or a giveaway. It's just what you did back then. What if you fast forward 80 years, 90 years, you have a competitive advantage that's hard to close the gap on. Mm. I did not realize the implication of 20 generations, 17 generations of enslaved people overtly and legalized racial activity, suppression of neighborhoods. I didn't realize the accumulative effect on home ownership, income, wealth, health. I, I didn't I didn't really step back far enough away from it to, to realize how much that creates a dynamic that's hard to close. That that's just it's just I use the monopoly analogy in the book where you know this professor in North Carolina allowed she had nine students and she allowed the first three to start the Monopoly game at the beginning. And you might say Monopoly is an equality game. So equality versus equity. It is the equality game. You all start the same amount of money. You get $200 and you pass go. You, you, know, you roll the dice. So there's a little bit of, of luck or, or chance to it, but I mean, a little bit of skill and daring. But she let the first three start the game. And then 45 minutes later, she let the second group start. Well, what did the second group find? They found that the first group had already bought up land. They had already accumulated $200 every time they passed go. But, but there was probably still some opportunity for group two. But then when she let the third group start, an hour and a half after the game started, all the properties purchased. They don't just have houses on it. They put those red hotels on it now. And so it's really a blocked up thing. And instead of opportunity when you land on a property, you have an opportunity to pay rent because that's what happens when you land on someone's property instead of the opportunity to buy. That's kind of how our nation was built intentionally. 
And so people say, well, it's, it's, it's equality now. Well, I, I would argue we're not quite there yet. But even if you argue we are, it's equality after you've had two or three rounds of playing Monopoly. And so I didn't realize how, how big that gap was and how much it still plays a role in education, the way we fund our public schools today. It plays out in corporate ascension. It plays out now. It's going to play out more and more in, in higher ed because the gains we've made have been because we've taken intentional action to close the gaps we created on purpose. So we, we created these gaps on purpose. And I don't think anybody can debate that. Do you think, BJ, that they can debate that we, by laws, I, I, we had. Go ahead. Do you think they can debate that? I, I, I want to know what you mean by that. I don't know. Well, I mean, let me, look, let me give slavery you existed. It, and, and it created the, the, for 10 generations. So, so it created this gap in wealth, education, and so on and so forth. So you got, right. you got folks in this country that didn't have access to education or all of that stuff, right? So, so and, it, and what, meanwhile, our country was growing. And so people were investing in property and industry. And again, this group was left out. And even right. after that, you had Jim Crow laws that prevented people from voting and owning homes and all, all kinds of things. So even after slavery, you had these other things going on. It's just hard for me when people say equality, I think, well, that would have been fine if we started in 1776 and we all started together. But we didn't all start Correct. together. Uh, and it created some kind of gap there. So. This, this idea of equality versus equity, uh, the way we've made progress in this country, the reason I'm talking to you today, we would have never met each other if someone hadn't taken intentional acts to put me in the game. And I've got seven of them that happened to me along the way, including Mountain Union, by the way, and IBM. And I tell these stories in the book. I wouldn't have gone to Mountain Union. I wouldn't have gone to IBM. I wouldn't own this company. It's just a number of things that happened because someone was intentional about closing the gap between the races. You can call it affirmative action if you want to. You can call it axis of intentionality, which is what I try to call it in the book because affirmative action is bad work. But it's the recognition we've got these gaps and some intentionality about trying to close you, them. So you called it acts of intentionality? I call it actions of intentionality. Actions of intentionality. Sorry. Yeah, uh, like and that. again, yeah. And again, I, I try to stay away from labeling people. I, actually, I don't think I did at all in, in the book. At least I tried not to. And if I did label them, I labeled me too. So for example, when people say that you know some people are privileged, well, okay, uh, I'm privileged too. I mean, my parents were flipping amazing, right? They pushed education. They drove me pretty mm -hmm. hard. I was pretty rambunctious. They were patient with me, stuck in there with me. You know, So I've got some privilege and, and I don't have the same privilege as other people, but we all got some. So I try not to label people that way. But I will right. say this gap is one that if, if you don't recognize that it's true, then that's just a problem of facts. If you do recognize that it's true, now we can have a real discussion whether you think we ought to do anything about it. You might say, well, it is what it is. That's just where we are. I, uh, we can have that conversation. But I struggle, BJ, with people who tell me we're, it's, it's, we're, we live in a world of equality. That's just the way we built this country. It's too late to just talk about equality without some actions of intentionality about closing the gap that we created in intention. Right. I, I, I would agree with that. I think that, let me, let me pull back a little bit. There are other cultures that I think would, would argue they've had their, their struggle too, or they've had their, their lack of opportunity. 
Yeah. And you, you, you know, whether it's Polish or Irish or, or, yeah. you know, immigrants coming into the country and, and getting started. I agree. I don't know enough, you know, historical facts about each, each individual one. Yeah, I don't either. think that any, anybody, you know, slavery certainly was not, you know, that was, that is it was something longer. very different. Yeah. So here's what I say. I don't, I don't like to compare people's traumatic experiences because that means I've minimized somebody's experience and you can't because it's their experience and it was horrible and wrong. Right. I will say this. When I hear that, I just ask people to go do their research on how, under what circumstances did they come for the, to this nation? How long did that situation last? And when did they become white? Because Polish, Irish, Italian are all white today. Right. Right. I agree with you. And, and, and so I'm not trying to fight where people came in and, and how they got treated. That That is inappropriate because their experiences are real and they're impactful to their families and their history and all of that. Right. But if they just ask questions about those three things, I think they can contextualize this thing, honor where their where their ancestors came from and how they came to this country and recognize that others have a different story. Native Americans, for example, have a very, very different story, which is also for very sure. Traumatic. And so I, I try not to get into the my woes are bigger than your woes, because that's not what this is really about. I'm, I'm glad you said that, because I, I also agree with that. I think that's, and I think it's an important point to recognize. All right. So. Well, it's, it's critical we, because if, if I don't recognize that, then it makes it harder for someone to, to come out of their defensive place to try to exactly recognize right. what I'm to have a, <laughs> I agree. The message yeah. gets lost. Somebody completely is defensive about it. And now we're not having a conversation. We're having an argument. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I, I appreciate the EQ that goes into how you're talking about this. And again, you know, I, it, it needs to be broadened. So I hope this, I hope this conversation, you know, turns some, turns some more conversations from arguments into, into discussions. Talk to me about what else, what else is written in the book? Yeah, well, I write about a, a number of things and I try to use as many personal examples so that they can connect what I'm saying to, to the, to, to the message I'm trying to portray. But what I try to do is spend a th- at least a third of the book on what can we do about this? Like what, what can we do? We're about, about action. Together? So let's, let's, let's yeah. hit that. So, so let's start with the first thing, which I, I don't know. You, you talked about the left and the right already. And, and we're getting, we're getting pimped in the middle. You know, I'd say 85% of Americans are, are in the middle. In the middle. Yeah. They may be, they may be further right. Or further left, but they're in the middle, and and, and usually they they're further right on one one or two issues. It's like that's what I was about to I'm, say. I'm, I was about to say, yeah, they're, 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 we're all sitting on top of each other on many many things, but we this one thing I don't, you know, abortion is a perfect example. You know, yeah. people are for very clear reasons on one side of that thing or the other. That is yep. one issue, but we have made that be or or that if you're on the right because of that issue then you've got to line up with all the other right stuff. And quite yep. honestly, I just don't think America is that, that simple. And so I, I write in the well, book. So that that's I an, think it, are, that's an, I, I want to hit that because that's a, yeah. everything is nuance, right? Every there's, there's yeah. idiosyncrasies to every conversation. There's nuance yeah. to every conversation. 
there's not nuance to sound bites that are going out as headlines on on whatever news channel or and right. and that's what stokes emotion. So like we're we're either too busy, too naive, too too ignorant to like figure out what's yeah. what's the actual issue behind the issue. And a lot of the times I feel like we're too busy because news yeah. sources used to be news sources that were educational and informational. Now they're emotional and and clickbaity. It, it so, really are, and it and it's dangerous. And I, I will tell you, and I don't want to get all you know patriotic on you, but I'm worried about democracy, and I'm worried because democracy was fragile in the first place. An it's, an experiment. Experiment. it's an experiment. Yeah, an unproven yeah. experiment, right? And and what what it de- successful democracy demands that the citizenry is educated, engaged, and aware. Yep. And I'm concerned with none of the three, right? I'm, I'm concerned with none of the three. And so as politics becomes more like religion, and I, what I mean by that is instead of the intellectual understanding, it's become a belief system that I no longer need facts to support, right? That's where I'm comparing it to religion. As, as politics becomes religion, it is harder to get people to even come down out of that place to have a good conversation. So I'm very worried about democracy because I, I, I know it demands us. Yeah. And we're, we're getting played. And it demands civility. It does. And we're not having that either. Well, because here's why. Because when you lived in the left and right world, and again, I think those are the friends. I think that's 10% on each side. Like, you know, I didn't do the math, but it's close, right? It's a very small uh, group. But, but if you can't, as a Republican, who may not be in that last 10%, but if you can't agree with a Democrat on anything or they'll run a primary against you and you will lose because we've got these gerrymandered, gerrymandered districts, yeah. then, then you're afraid to even compromise or to be seen at dinner with a Democrat. <laughs> I, and, and I don't know if it was the earmark doing away with earmarks, which probably had very good intentions, but I think it stole the currency for people to cross aisle and, Hey, I got to give here to get there. And I'm representing, I'm, I'm representing a mixed population of people yeah. that care about different things. But, you know, it, I think, hey, I think we, it, we got this economic it, win. We, we gave yeah. on this social issue or yeah, it's crazy. I think it is. It's probably a lot of factors. Uh, yeah. Social media doesn't help because we can we can we can spiral conversation and, and for communication sure. very very quickly. But I also think that the 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 structure of districts into protected places made this worse. Be, be, and, and so the threat of voting you out is a real one. The threat of primarying you is a real threat. Whereas before you like yeah primary if you want to I'm still going to win because I've got this base and I can you know. I think we've really created these districts that are just really, really weird. And, and it's, I think it's hurt. Well, and to that point, as soon as you get elected, you have to start campaigning instead of getting elected and getting to work. Right. right? You're, you're you got to start you, money, next day, you money start. day one. Absolutely. <laughs> so At least I, they call me day one. <laughs> they call me day one. <laughs> All right. So back to action. I'm going back to what I was. So yeah, the, the action. So here's what I believe is paramount for us. It is a long-term opportunity with, with short-term actions. We must educate the next generation of kids, people, to be the most culturally competent 
people on the planet. I think it's going to bring our country back together. I think it's going to en enable us to lead again in areas of education and entrepreneurship and other. I think we've got a distracted nation on infighting because we're not culturally competent. I, and I worry that we're setting policies in place that make it harder to educate kids in, in, in cultural competency. But, but in my mind, it's critically important. And here's why I say it. No, we're no longer living in a nation that will assimilate to white male norms. I, I, people are just not going to do it anymore. If it, whether it's around gender preference, whether it's around hairstyles or dress or race, it doesn't matter. When I grew up, we assimilated to white male culture. That's how you were successful. People aren't going to do it anymore. And so we're going to have this tension in our workplace. We're going to have it in our streets. We're going to have it in our neighborhoods. Unless we educate the next generation to be the most culturally competent, that doesn't mean you don't have strong beliefs. That doesn't mean you don't believe one thing or the other. But to understand each other's situation more clearly is very, very important. So I write about in the book that this culture, this idea of cultural competency is very, very important. Uh, so I'll, I'll pause there. I've, I've got one other I'll, I'll share with you. But So, so my, my reaction to that is understanding while having strong beliefs. I, again, I feel like the ability to be civil about that to to see the world differently but still respect each other and have a conversation about it and and open minded versus being a zealot for every social issue that comes up right it is what's and I go back to the politics are reinforcing this because divisiveness is good for getting reelected and, and who 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 controls the airwaves is yeah. you know it, it feels like the the country's emotional tension goes up every four years. <laughs> well, the problem is, is that the four years have shrunk. Like, you know, so it's you start true. working it's for two years. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's really two years now. It's every two years, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, I agree with you. And I, I think, you know, I don't know anyone that's against the logic of this idea of a culturally competent person, a person that I grows in empathy because they understand. But yet they back up ideas. I, I've had people tell me, I don't want my kids to feel embarrassed about being white. I said, okay, so you want my kids to feel abused from being black? Like, 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 well, I don't understand what you're saying. Isn't there a way to teach our kids that this is our collective history together, that we both own it, that, that I'm not asking you to be ashamed of it and I'm asking you to feel persecuted for it. I'm asking you to understand it and its implication for today. I know there's I, a way to do that. I agree with you. I think that the concern is more in do we have a public school system that people have faith in to deliver that? Well, that's a whole other debate. <laughs> don't, get, don't get me going. And I'm a product of public schools and so, so am I. And we are, so we are I. huge advocates of public schools. But even that has reasons why that exists the way it is. And don't get me started. But the dysfunction of school boards is like one of my pet peeves. I mean, the people yeah. on school boards. For the most part, not all of them. Gosh, I hope the people from my city don't see this. But, you know, <laughs> I, I just, I, I don't, I look at them and I'm like, I wouldn't hire you to run the dog catcher ward. Like, I, I mean, I, I, you, you're not qualified to be in the seat. And then you hire a superintendent and want to tell the superintendent how they ought to educate. You, you shouldn't have hired the superintendent if you didn't th think the superintendent right, knew how they to educate. Right, they weren't qualified. 
right. they weren't qualified, right? So right. anyway, I just I agree with you. I, I, what I don't want though is I don't believe that a state senator or a congressman from you know Delaware or wherever they might be from is qualified to tell me what curriculum ought to look. Mm-hmm. I really don't. I and to yeah. tell me that I can't talk about diversity and I can't talk about, a, I got to talk about history in a way that is so whitewashed that we'll never, ever get the implications of it and understanding of it. That bothers me. I mean, the, the so, so I would just say to you that I'll go back to what I wrote because I stand behind what I wrote. What I wrote was, yeah, we need, we need a generation of culturally competent individuals if we're going to lead the world. If we're okay slipping to second-class citizenry, if we're okay having a dysfunctional democracy until we completely let it fall apart, then we can keep going down the road we're going on. But that is the road we're headed on, and all the signs are signals to it. it and I think I, I, here's, here's what we're heading on. And I considered politics for about a hot second. That's <laughs> no I. longer the that's no longer the leaders that we can we can count on, right? Because of all the issues we just talked about, they're too distracted right. trying to stay in office that they they can't really be the ones having civilized conversations. They have to have competitive, right. divisive conversations. So they got to take a stance on an issue, and if it, it and it's got to line up with where the votes are, you know, voting blocks are are what they're catering to. Yeah, it's not every politician, but I I do believe it's, it's actually I think it is every politician. I, I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know of any. And I, I know some I really respect that. But they, there's this reality that they face that in order to win races and raise money, they either have to be so far left or so far right. And they cannot compromise on certain things or, or they don't get real. Life. And there's very well, few and, that and, live that from a state and, or, or district that's balanced. And I think what you hit on earlier, which is understanding while having strong beliefs or convictions, politicians need to have permission to do the same. They have to be able to understand our nation and the diversity of it and be culturally competent, while also we have to give them permission to have their own strong beliefs. If I'm a white male Catholic, I got to be able to believe what I believe while I can lead in an understanding that there is separation of church and state and that like there's some things that I, I'm not going to bring to that job. I have to, I have to be more, I have to be more balanced. We're aligned. aligned. I I just don't, I, I hate to say this, but I've given up on that. I, I, I believe that you and I and the seats we sit in and our peers have a disproportionate opportunity to affect the future of our nation. And we've got to take responsibility for doing it. Because the politicians just can't. They're in a system that won't let it happen for them. And so I acknowledge that. I don't write checks to them anymore because I get it, but I'm not going to feed it. I literally do not write checks to them. I've got, if you're my friend before you run, I got to write you a check because you're my friend. I don't even care what party you are. I'm going to write you a check. But, but other than that, I'm not writing checks anymore because it, it, I'm, I feel like I'm feeding a monster that's eating on itself. And even my well-meaning well-meaning politicians are stuck in a bad situation. But you in a private business and me in a private, we've got an opportunity to run our companies and to affect our communities and to to decide how we hire and how we develop and where we put our resources and how we help our people understand and who we partner with. We've got these opportunities to close the gaps between us. And, yeah. and you don't have to worry about getting reelected. 
You just got to keep making money. I said, I just need you to keep making money so you can be successful, right? And so you wouldn't want to do anything that hurts you from making money, but at least such a broad way of you feeling what you feel and, and believing what you believe, but also being open to learn and understand and have empathy and recognize other people are other people. So I've turned to my, my business colleagues and I'm, and I'm saying, this is what we can do. And, and we may go in the polling booth and pull that lever for some different people. That's okay. But we yeah. can do these things together in the community. And so that's just been my mantra. The, the, the pass along rate of this book is more from white males than anybody else, because I think they read the book, they read the letters. They don't agree with 62% of it. I made that up. I don't know. But they do <laughs> love the spirit that I'm coming to the conversation and the opportunity to go do something in the world. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE-verified, service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. And, and we started this, I'll let everybody know, we started this with, with that in mind, like, it's the spirit. We're we're going into, you know, maybe uncomfortable territory from a I'm being recorded standpoint, but yeah. the spirit is this is a discussion. This is open. This is not an argument. This is me seeking to understand what your perspective is in writing the book and and you, you know, getting my perspective back and my reactions. Yeah. And yeah. I think we I, I think that's the action we need to take and that that'll be my challenge to everybody listening whether you pass this along or not, whether you read the book or not, whether you're white or black or not, it's it, be willing to have a conversation and ask somebody, you know, what's your perspective on this? Right? And, and, and create the safe space to, to listen and understand, not react. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, I, take, and I think take these conversations the, back to the community, back to the dinner table, back to wherever. Yeah. And off of social media and off of the, the political soapboxes. Yeah, I call for in, in the book, I, I say to my white friends, and it, was, it may have been in the last letter that I wrote. It was, hey, have this, make, this, make this thing a thing. So have this conversation with your white friends without black people around. Because many, many times my white friends are like, I want to go talk to my black friends. Hey, your black friends are done. They're just tired of talking about this. Well, <laughs> what would it look like for six white people to be in a room and say, I've been struggling with this thing about race. I don't even understand what the problem is. Can we talk about this? And having a real candid conversation. I just wonder what that might look like, what fruit it might bear, what 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 pass along information that white people might have to one another. Because when you have it with an African-American person, and I'm just talking about black and white right now, we can talk about how I frame this, this conversation. I think we should. But I just wonder how, how fruitful that conversation, because it's safer. When you're right. in that space, right? By the way, I, and I'm, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, but I got to say this: part of my construct, my construct, and this is hard to hear. So I hope your listeners are ready. I hope you're ready, but it's harder for me to say that I think we built the nation intentionally. And I stole this from a group in North Carolina, Green, Greensboro, North Carolina, Racial Equity Institute. They framed this conversation and thinking about it as we built the nation with whites on top, blacks on the bottom and everybody else in between. And I only raise that to say that as we go about trying to solve the gap between us, we must frame this in, we, we, we've got to understand that we've got that framing 
And if we don't intentionally include African-Americans, they will almost always be left out of the outcomes that we get. You, you pick it. If you want diversity on your board of directors and you, and you define diversity broadly, you, you, will, you will have women, probably white women. You will have Asian Indians. You'll have, it, having African-Americans will, will become the last thing that we do and the last thing that we solve for. And there's a lot of reasons for that we can talk about. But so I just I wanted to share that with you. That that's kind of how I I don't think we built a nation. There's concrete evidence that we literally built a nation. And and then we negotiated our way to keep it like that. Even the civil rights amendments that, that came out of the 60s, they were a negotiated settlement to, to hold a, this thing together. So we can't forget that as a nation, but but yet we don't want to learn those details of how this construct worked together. And meanwhile, I'm a happy, thankful American, wouldn't want to be in any other country, think this country provides more opportunity than any other country on the planet, at least it does today. And I want to do my civic duty every day. So you don't, you're not talking to an angry African-American. I just wanted to clarify my positioning on that. I mean, at least my thinking. It all comes through in your spirit. And I, I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with us about it. And, yeah. and really it help us take action, motivate yeah, us so to take action. I, I, yeah, I talked about the kids. I, I also believe that, that we as business leaders have this enormous opportunity. I, I talked to my, my CEO colleagues and they want to change the world. And I love that. They want to go out and change the world. And I say to them, well, why don't you start with the, the sphere of influence, the sphere of control that you have the most control over? Why don't you change your company? Why don't you go look at how you hire and where you where you go to search for talent and where you're investing in the community and who you're partnering with in business and who you're inviting to invest in the next real estate deal with you? Why don't you look for ways to close the gap between us in ways that you can control? And it's weird to me, the face, the look I get on their face is kind of like they never thought of that. But that's where we're uniquely qualified to change people's lives, to get someone an opportunity that they weren't going to get that turns into an opportunity for a family, for a community, for and BJ, that to me is the inspiration. That's solving this thing at macro level is beyond us, but we can solve sure. micro challenges every single day and provide micro opportunities that turn into to things. And so I'm hearing these stories from people around the country of things they're doing. That may not sound like a big deal to, to some people, but, 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 but they matter. I'll give, I'll give you a quick one. There's a guy raising a fund to invest in a real estate deal. This is round, This is the second fund that they're raising. The first fund was very, very successful. He didn't need additional money. They were going to raise their amount of money anyway. But he somehow read this book and, and networked his way through to, he says he wants to meet me. So we talk and he says, hey, I'm not going to launch this fund unless I have 10% African-American dollars. It's a $100 million fund. I did that math. I was like, ooh, that's going to be interesting. And he admitted, he said, I've got no black friends. Like, I, I can't raise a dollar of black dollars. I don't have any wealthy. I don't know them. Uh, so we, we connected in with a few people who are kind of in that business. And long story short, he didn't have to do that. But he was intentional about making sure that he got African-American dollars in his investment. Now what he got is, I don't know how many investors he got, but he's got a new set of black friends. If they make money together, the next time he goes right. out for a fund, he doesn't have to be so intentional. This is his new network now of people yep. that he knows and that he socializes with. And it sounds small, except it's, it's generative in its effect. And that intentionality is something we can all think about in our sphere of influence. Yeah. 
I, I appreciate that as a challenge to, to me and to, to our listeners. Anything we didn't cover that you want to hit? I'll just say that I think I have the most articulate presentation of reparations ever written because I had to convert myself. I have a letter in there about reparations. I, 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 I'm 50, I'll be 59 in two weeks. I never believed in reparations, thought it was a ridiculous idea. How stupid can you be until I actually studied it? And I'm still not sure that I, I really believe we ought to do it, but the, but the case that can be made illuminates my mind and can illuminate the mind of the reader about how we built the nation and its implications on today and the difference a, a single payment might make to a particular set of families. So I just say to folks who, if they really want to get upset about something, read that letter about, about reparations, because I really do call for us to study it, because I, I think the argument is compelling. Okay. Is there any chance that we can grab that and, and put a link to a PDF for that chapter in the, Just for that in the chapter, show notes? Sure. Yeah. We'll, we'll link to that in the show notes. And, and I'm, I'm going to say this on air because I'm, I'm going to hold myself accountable and I'm going to hold Erica accountable. You have to meet Mike Stedman, Iron Mike Stedman, who is actually the, the black veteran entrepreneur behind our podcast. He is our producer. He is a friend of mine. He just wrote a book on black veteran entrepreneurship and he's writing another one. So you and Wonderful. you and Mike need to need to connect. I think you'll Iron uh, Mike. Iron Mike Stedman. He was a he was a he was a boxer at the Naval Academy. Oh um, so I'll make sure we connect you guys. So you went to West Point. He went I went to, to West Point. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. We've got an Army Navy rivalry going on behind oh, the scenes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I look forward to it. All right. So we're going to make that connection. Mel Gravely, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for, for your book and thank you for the conversation today. I love your heart, love your spirit, love what you're doing and really, really appreciate your time. BJ, it was my honor. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open. Contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.